I want to welcome you, and I'm Pastor Matt, and if you're joining us in-house or online, we're so glad you're with us, whether you're live or after the fact. We're, we're, this morning, we're going to talk about conflict. Conflict is one of those things we wish we didn't have in life, right? And, and as I've talked with many, many people over the years, there's a couple of ways we deal with conflict. Some people are, you just head right at it. You just want to face conflict head on and get it out, get it done, get it over with, right? And then there's others of you that are, are more passive and you'd like to avoid it. You act as though it's not there. You kind of put it under a rug and say, maybe it'll go away if I don't look at it, right? And it doesn't work that way in life, does it, in relationships? And conflict isn't something we'll ever avoid. And when we grow to be healthy human beings and healthy Christ followers will learn, and I'm still learning that process, that we have to move through conflict, but we have to do it in a healthy way. And some of you have been part of relationships or even part of churches where there's been conflict within the church. And I, my guess is many of you can probably point to situations where conflict within a church was not handled well, and uh, it went badly. And maybe, hopefully, some of you were in a situation where there was real conflict, but it was worked out, and it, was, it, brought, it made the church stronger and better. I think those are more rare situations, and we don't often see those. But it's true. It was true in the early church. And in Acts chapter 15, what we're going to see is we're going to see the church, the early church, working through conflict. There's a huge conflict going on. That conflict began uh, when the church was composed of more than just Jewish people. Now we have Samaritans that are part of the church. Now we have Gentiles who are part of the church. And so the question is, what, is, what are we going to do with these Samaritans? What are we going to do with these Gentiles? What are we going to do with these people who aren't Jewish? And how are we going to include them into the church? What does that look like? This is a huge, huge issue. And it was one the church had to navigate. Now, here's what I've noticed. We tend to take a view today on when we think about the gospel and we think about, you know, uh, grace and all that stuff. We, we take a couple of different views if we're Christians, if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Some people take a view, and it's very American, and they say it's a liberal view, and it's you do you. Whatever you believe is fine. Whatever I believe is fine. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Now, Scripture is going to be very clear that, yes, it does matter. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a pretty exclusive statement. That's not you do you. That's kind of you have to kind of rein your, your belief system in, right? The other extreme is that we, we have these beliefs that we think are important, but other people don't think they're important. And in the scheme of things, they're really not major belief issues, but we make them major issues. We take minor issues and we make them major. That's what the church, the early church, is going to wrestle with. They're going to wrestle with what do we do with with these people, and they're bringing these issues, and some of them are saying, this is a major issue, and others are going, yeah, we don't think that's a major issue. So we're going to look at that, Acts chapter 15. So I'm going to read through this. Now, what I didn't do in the first service was I didn't prepare them. As I read through this, I'm going to stop a couple times, 
And I'm going to just kind of give you historical context of what's happening so that you'll understand and we can better understand what's, what's happening here because there's a lot going on here. So Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, let's just stop there. What is happening? There are believers, it says from Judea, they probably come from Jerusalem. They're coming down from Jerusalem, and what's happening is they're, 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 they were raised from tiny tots to be Jewish, but they became followers of Jesus. So they go, so their thing is, how much of our Jewish tradition do we bring in? And so they're, they're coming to Antioch, which is a very stronghold of Gentiles who have become believers. And so what the Jewish people from Jerusalem are coming, and they're believers, they're coming down to Antioch, and they're saying to the Gentile believers, what are they saying? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom uh, taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're saying you need to be circumcised to be saved. All right. Now, what you have to understand here is that's what they say now, but we're going to see they have a lot more than that. <laughs> okay? That's just the first salvo that they're firing. There's going to be more than that. Now, notice, notice um, who, who do we know who are in Antioch right now? Well, Paul and Barnabas. They're, they've been planning the church the churches, the local churches down there. And this is what it says. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, uh, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told, the Gentile, they, they, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This new news uh, made all the believers very glad when they came to Jerusalem. Then they welcomed; they, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they responded, uh, reported everything that God had done for them, through them. Now, what's going on here? All right, so Paul and Barnabas are leaders. They're teaching in the church of, of, of Antioch, the Gentiles. They're establishing churches there. They're putting leadership up. And so the leadership there in Antioch says, you need to go up to Jerusalem and find out if what these guys are saying is true. Okay? So Paul and Barnabas travel. They, and as they're traveling through these different communities, as they're heading to Jerusalem in Judea, they are basically telling what the, you know, God is doing among the Gentiles. And everybody's you know, saying, cool, that's great. You know, good, good stuff. All right, so now Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem. The Jewish believers that had come down to Antioch, they're there. They're kind of like, they've all come together. They're going to have it out. This is going to be, you know the church meeting? Uh, we have a lot of church meetings and nobody ever shows up. You know what that means? Things are going well. Uh, somebody said, and I think it's true, when everybody shows up for a church meeting, it's not good, all right? This is one of those meetings, all right? This is one of those, oh, what's going to happen, you know? Okay, so here we are. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up, so they're in the crowd in, at Jerusalem, the Gentiles must be circumcised and Required to keep the law of Moses. I told you there was another thing they were going to say. It's not just keep be circumcised. Now you have to keep the law too. The law of Moses. All right? The apostles and elders, 
met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God knows the heart. Uh, He showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. That's important. He did not discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as we are. All right, so here's what's going on here. Peter is one of the leaders here. Now, let me just put a caveat in here. We have church traditions out there, Christian church traditions, that says Peter is the leader of the church. When we come to Jerusalem, what we find is there's really three leaders. There's Paul, and we'll see that Paul has more of a leadership position as he becomes more mature as a follower. We have Peter, we just heard from Peter, and then we're going to have James. We'll see him in a minute. So there's really three, three leaders, and Paul in one of his letters says that they're the pillars of the church, uh, not one, but three pillars of the church. Uh, so that's very interesting. But notice, on, notice this. The whole assembly became silent. They listened to Paul and Barnabas telling them about the signs and the wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. Now, the argument that Peter makes is simply this. They spoke, the Spirit of God came on them the same way it came upon us on the day of Pentecost. So in the same way that the Jews received the Holy Spirit and we see the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the same thing is happening to the Gentiles in Antioch. Okay? So if God put the Holy Spirit in us and put the same Holy Spirit in them, one and one goes together, they must be part of the church. Okay? And uh, he says something very important. He says, uh, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as we are. So Peter's kind of saying here, there's nothing they have to do. This is really important. All right, so Paul and Barnabas get up, and they basically just share what they've seen and what they've noticed. And, and they're basically, their position obviously is similar to what Peter just got done saying. They're basically saying there should be no uh, extra hurdles that they have to jump over. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the law. And, but we don't have any of their speech. We just see that they, you know, Luke is just saying, and they got up and they shared what, they were, what was happening in Antioch, okay? This is the interesting part. When they finished... James spoke up. Now, some of you know who James is, but some of you don't. James is the brother of Jesus. He grew up in the house of Joseph and Mary. He was one of Jesus' brothers, okay? And James wasn't a believer, and he didn't believe in Jesus while Jesus walked on this earth. In fact, his family, Jesus' family, including James, thought that he was a li- Jesus was a little nuts at one point. Now, he came to become a believer and a follower, and, and obviously he's, he's a leader here in the church of Jerusalem. He is, one, he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and this is the major sending church of the world at that time, the Christian world at that time. So he gets up. He's well-respected. Notice what he says. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter he's talking about, has described to us how God first intervened 
to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does those things, things known from long ago. So essentially all he's doing here is he's saying this. He's saying the Old Testament scriptures, by the way, that's all they had. There were no New Testament scriptures at, in Acts 15, right? They, all they have is the Old Testament. And so basically what James does is he pulls out the Old Testament scriptures and says, this is exactly what the Old Testament said was going to happen. The Gentiles were going to believe and be engrafted into this new, this new people that God was making, the church. So that's his argument. His argument is this is exactly what God said was going to happen. Now notice what he says. He says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So they come to this agreement, and the agreement is this. We're not going to ask the Gentiles to become circumcised or to follow the law. And so our passage really answers a number of really important questions. The first one is this. Does a Gentile need to become a Jew? And the answer from the council was no, they don't. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to uh, follow the law, the letter of the law and the teachings of the law. They, they, they don't have to follow that. It's not necessary. And so here's, here's, the, here's the question they're wrestling with. The real question they're wrestling with is how is a person made right with God? Are they made right by keeping the law, by trusting in Jesus and keeping the law, or are they just made right by calling upon the Lord and are saved? Well, the council, Peter, Paul, James, basically said the same thing. They said, it's by faith, it's by grace. And so does salvation come through grace alone, by faith alone, uh, and uh, by Christ alone? And they would answer, yes, that's essentially what the leaders said at, at, at the council. Now, we take this for granted today. Um, the other party, the Jewish party, and again, these, I believe, are believers, but they were raised as tots. They grew up as, as, as Jews. They followed the law from birth. They were circumcised. They, they followed the letter of the law. And so it's very hard for them. Can you imagine being raised that way? And then all, all of a sudden being told, yeah, you don't really have to do that anymore. What? That's my life. That's the way I was raised. That's a family tradition. You say, no, Christ is the end of the law. He, he fulfilled the law. You know, it's like, no, there's got to be more than that. There's got to be rules and regulations and things, right? And, and so that's what they're saying. They were raised in the rigors of Judaism, and now they're being told, yeah, these Gentiles, they don't have to follow the law. They don't have to be part of the rigors that you were raised in. So that's a problem. Um, here's what was happening, and it was really essential. They were adding to the gospel. They were saying, believe in Jesus, in Christ, but also this is what you have to do too, right? Uh, notice Peter's words. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that we either, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He says, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? See, here's the point. 
that we have to understand, because this is still happening today. The reason I'm talking about this is because it still happens today. And I'll give you some examples. When we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Now, we have to stand for the gospel. It can't just be you do you. The gospel has to be held tight. There is a gospel. It is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, that's the gospel. Whoever believes in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's the gospel, okay? That we're sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all need a Savior. That, there's no compromise at all with that. But the question comes at the back end, but do you, have, do you add anything to it? And Paul writes this in Galatians. It's very interesting what he writes here. He says this. This is Galatians 1, verses 6 through 8. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. In other words, what Paul's saying is when you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. You don't have a gospel there. And then he says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. Now, Paul says this twice. It's some of the strongest, strongest language that Paul has. Any of his letters, this is the strongest. And what he's basically saying is when you add anything to the gospel, you lose the gospel, you pervert the gospel. And Paul's basically saying, why would you let that happen? Now, if you read more into the letter of Galatians, you'll find out what they were adding. What were they adding? Circumcision. They said, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised too. Do you want to know that's being done today? Do you want to know what the number, what the, what the, uh, the, what we add today to the gospel? Here's what we add today. Many churches do that. They say, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus and you by faith and you're a sinner and you need a savior and you have to trust Jesus, but you also have to be baptized. The deal's not done until you're dunked. Deal's not done until you've been sprinkled or sprayed. You have to be baptized. If you're not baptized, you're not in. There are churches today that are saying that. That's the Galatian error. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Don't add to the gospel. The gospel must be kept pure. And when you add things to it, notice what he says. But this is one of those times where the English kind of um, softens the Greek because it says in the English, let him be under God's curse if you add to the gospel, okay? Now, he says it twice. You know what he means? You know what the, the act, when you look at the, and again, I don't want, really want to say this because it sounds like, oh, you know Greek. No, no that's not the point. I don't want you to say that. But here's, here's essentially what Paul's saying. May they be damned to hell. And then he says it again. In case you didn't hear me the first time, if, you, if anyone adds to the gospel and teaches others that, may they be damned to hell. Why? Because they've closed off the only road to, to heaven. So there's some doctrines that you can't just be you do you. You can't just take a liberal view of things. You have to say, I will defend the gospel. The gospel is essential. It's important. Paul says, if somebody preaches another, even if it's an angel or us, they're wrong. (laughs) Okay? That's really important. 
And, and what was happening was the Jewish people who saw certain things, behaviors as essential, were trying to put these essential beliefs, what they saw essential, on the Gentiles, the Jewish people were. And the council basically said, no, don't do that. That's not essential anymore. So, so what are the essentials of the faith? What are the major important things of the faith? And really, we, we mentioned one, if salvation is through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But let me give you a couple that are from our doctrinal statement that I think are essentials of the faith. Just so we have a, a kind of a, we know what the field is. We know what the sandbox is of what are essentials. We believe in one God, the creator of all things, holy, perfect, eternal, existing in a loving unity of three divine persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Churches that deny the Trinity are outside of Orthodox Christianity. That's an essential belief. Okay, because that makes Jesus and the Holy Spirit created beings or angels or something like that, which is the cults, what, what many of the cults believe. We, we believe that God has spoken to us through his scripture, both Old and New Testaments, through his verbally inspired word, without error, the original documents. We don't have the original documents. We have copies of copies of copies. But we have accurate, we have accurate reading. You know, the scriptures that we have are accurate. We know they're accurate. So there's no doctrine that we're missing or that we got wrong. Okay? But the, when we say inspired, we don't mean, oh, I feel inspired to have a latte today, or I, inspired, I feel inspired to write a, write a book today, or write a paragraph or an article today. No, that's not what we're talking about. Peter says in his epistle, he says, these men didn't just wake up and say, oh, I'm inspired. No, they were driven along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. He guided them using their language, using their vocabulary, using their uh, just the way they would write, but accurately giving us what God wanted us to have. That's what we believe about the scriptures. We believe that God created Adam and Eve as human beings in his image, that, but because they sinned and alienate, were, they became alienated from God. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. That somehow or another in Adam and Eve, we all sinned, we all fell, and we're born not with a clean slate, but we're born sinners, and we're born lost, and we're born in desperate need of a Savior. This is orthodox doctrine. This is what the majors are. This is what we would say uh, is, is essential. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, he, the promised Messiah, the only Savior of the world. He lived a sinless life and was crucified and arose from the dead, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father as our advocate. That Jesus wasn't just a phantom. He wasn't a spirit. He was a fully man and fully God at the same time. How? I don't know. That's what we call the incarnation. God becoming a man, a flesh. We believe that Jesus Christ is our representative and substitute. He shed his blood on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and vicarious res victorious resurrection constitute the ground for our salvation. We believe that the Holy Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus. He convicts the world of sin. He regenerates sinners and places them into the body of Christ, the church. These are some of the major majors, okay? And you can look at the Free Church uh, doctrinal statement, go to our website, it's on there, and you can see what, you know, the things that are major, things that we say, these are like, you don't do you, these are like essential. This is what the scriptures teaches, this is what the church for centuries has taught.
And the point I want you to see is that Christians and churches need to major on the majors. But you know, we don't always, right? You probably have been part of churches that they, I, I, I know that they're, they're kind of, the divide is this. Churches that don't have any majors at all, it's you do you, liberalism. And then there's other churches that are pretty legalistic and everything is a major, okay? So what are some of the examples of minor things that I know you're going to hear these and you're going to say, oh yeah, yep, I've been there, I've done it. These are some things that some churches make majors, but they're not majors, they're minors. What version of the Bible are you using right now? Using the 1611 King James only Bible? Huh? Are you? There are some churches in this community that if you walk in with a Bible that's not the King James Bible, you're going to get it, you know? You will. Because they have this belief that that's a major. I don't know anybody that speaks that, light, that English anymore. And frankly, what are we going to do? Are we going to teach the rest of the world how to speak that 1611 English? Now, again, I'm not, my point is this. It's okay to say, I like the King James Bible. I think it's more readable to me, and I, I, I grew up on it. No problem with that. But when you elevate it and say, unless you use this version of the Bible, you're outside of the church, you've just made a minor a major. Let me give you another one. What style of worship music is really honoring to God? Can we have drums and guitars? Can we have uh, upbeat music? Or is God only honored by hymns? Well, apparently, we've made a choice here, haven't we? By the way, you may not know this, but a lot of the hymns were barroom songs that people put Christian words on. You may not know that. I don't have time to sing a couple for you right now <laughs> before they became Christian songs. But that was a debate. It's not a huge debate now, but there are Christians who frown. They look down and say, well, you're not very good Christians because you will use that kind of music. Let me give you one that's a little more contemporary and a little bit more, uh, it's going to make you squirm a little bit. How old is our earth? Is it six to 8,000 years old or is it millions or billions of years old? Christians are divided over that today. There are some Christians that say, that's a major issue. And if you're not teaching our view, then you're not one of God's followers. Do you know, we don't have that in our doctrinal statement at Hope Church because we know that our people that hold either view, we're cool with that because we think that's a minor issue, not a major issue. Let me give you one more. When is Jesus coming back? Some people, some of you are old enough to remember the Left Behind series. I hope I wasn't the guy that was left behind. And I hope my pilot doesn't get left behind while we're at 20,000 feet in the air, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, this is, some have this view of eschatology that unless you believe this certain view of end times and when Jesus is coming back, you know, this is not a minor issue, it's a major issue. No, it's a minor issue. 
We do have a position, but it's kind of like, yeah, this is what we think, but we're, we're not sure. Because what we understand is we're not on the planning committee, we're on the welcoming committee. We don't set the date. We just say, oh, you're here, we're ready, come on, cool, right? But how many of you have, and by the way, we haven't even gotten to the really minor issues like we're going to divide and get into a big argument as a church because we don't like the color of the carpet that they're proposing or the color of the walls they're proposing. Okay. The two mistakes we make is this. Number one, we say there is no major doctrine. You do you. Scripture says, no, you don't do you. Not if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But also, you don't take the minors and make them majors. All right, so let me just close with one comment, or just one, just have a few comments to make. So all of a sudden now, the Gentiles have been told, you don't have to follow the the rigors of Judaism. Now, if the Jewish people still want to do kind of some of that stuff and that's important to them, eh, they can do it. They won't eat a certain kind of meat and they won't do this and, you know, they'll, you know some things they'll say are clean and unclean. Remember, Peter had that big argument, what, is, what God has called clean, don't call unclean. So Peter had to kind of get pulled through this whole thing. And so now the Gentiles have this new freedom and, and essentially, we didn't read this verse, but you can read it. It's the last verse after the last one I read. And basically it says, okay, and this was really to the Gentiles saying, okay, so some of you have freedom now. Don't compromise the gospel or, or don't allow your freedom, or, or does your freedom have any, any limitations at all? And essentially, Paul says, yes, yes. You may, in your own heart, in your own mind, be able to do something But if it is a hindrance to your brother or sister, you need to say, nope, I'm not going to do it out of love. Love is the the thing that holds us back. And uh, that's the request that James adds for the Gentiles. He's saying to the Gentiles, be sensitive to your more strict Jewish brothers and sisters that you just don't try to say, look what I can do and you can't. You know, don't do that because that's not loving. And that's why he says in Romans 14 and 15, he says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over uh, disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must judge Uh, not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind, whatever regards, whoever regards one day as a special, does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, he's saying there's a lot of minor issues in the church, and some of the minor issues are major in your life. That's okay. If you are convicted by it, then you hold to that. That's okay. Whatever God convicts you of, live to that. But don't hold that on someone else who doesn't hold the same conviction. In other words, allow love to rule in those non-essential areas. We, we have to have unity and be together on the essentials, but we also have to allow love to rule on the non-essentials. 
Don't allow your freedom to be a stumbling block for your brother or sister. So this is really a good because what it does is it helps us navigate in, in the church. And, you know, this is going on all over in churches today. Churches are divided over non-essential issues. And we have to decide. The church, early church did an incredible job because this was really, if they did not settle this, this could have exploded and the church would be very different than what we know today. But thank God for Peter for Paul, for James, and for the other apostles and leaders that basically said, let's focus on the essentials. Let's major on the majors. Let's minor on the minors. And let's show love for people who are in different positions on the minor issues. And that will bring us together as a church. See, if you don't have solid, sound, essential doctrine, you have no basis to gather together to say this is essential. But if you don't have the love on the minor issues, you can't come together either. And grace is held up when we don't add to the gospel, we don't subtract from the gospel, but then when the minor things come in, we show grace towards one another. There's a lot to chew on there, there's a lot to think about there, but as a church, may we grow in maturity to know what the majors are and what the minors are and to show grace in the area of the minor leagues. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Help us, Father, because uh, we need to um, understand your word. Thank you for the leaders in the, the church, the early church, and for this important decision that they came up with and how they, they walked a, a very important line of defending the essentials of the gospel but also allowing for freedom in the non-essentials. And that's a hard balance, and it's a hard path to walk today. And as churches, we get tripped up all the time. So help us, Father, to show love and patience for those non-essential differences that we may carry, and may we hold together strongly on the essentials. Because when we do that, Father, we become the church you desire us to be. May love bring us together, our love for the essentials and our love for one another. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.